This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, a really, really interesting guest who has done so much to promote the pro-Israel agenda around the world through his service and then through his speaking and then ultimately through the organization that continues to grow, influencing the most talented and promising young leaders around the world. Benjamin Anthony hails from Great Britain and ultimately served in the IDF and again has since made a real impact on the pro-Israel advocacy stage. I went into our conversation expecting just a basic understanding of someone who goes around to different campuses speaking, which is really what I understood our soldiers speak to be. And ultimately we really had a much more wide-ranging and fascinating discussion dealing with his own personal religious faith and the shifting dynamics thereof, perhaps in contradistinction to my own. I thought that was an important early part of our conversation. And then, of course, I was really amazed by how much this organization is doing, how far along it's come from just a single person going around to different congregations or different campuses speaking to a group that brings together experts in particular fields and matches them with specific audiences as well as leads missions all over the world among other initiatives. And finally, we ended with a really interesting digression into a whole nother project which he calls the New State Solution, which is not just his but a group of people's alternate solution to what has been, of course, known as the two-state solution for many years, and his roadmap, if you will, towards peace in the Middle East. So really a incredibly diverse and unique conversation. Benjamin is passionate about his arguments, ready to back them up, and also ready to hear divergent viewpoints and engage in robust debate with respect to all of the above-mentioned arenas. Once again, a reminder to please subscribe and tell those around you or not around you to do so as well on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you might be listening or wherever you are thinking about listening in the future. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know on Instagram, spelled out fully, also spelled fully on Facebook, and Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. And now, without further ado, to our conversation with... Benjamin Anthony. We are here with Benjamin Anthony of Our Soldiers Speak, a wonderful spokesperson uh, of sorts for the Israeli uh, soldiers and uh, does an incredible amount to promote the realistic and proper image of the Jewish state and its defenders across the world. How are you, Benjamin? I'm well. Thank you very much for having me, Rabbi. Thanks for all that you and your organization take on behalf of the Jewish people. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. So, uh, Benjamin, tell us a little bit about where you are from, what your your background, your early childhood, and we'll uh, start at the beginning. Sure. Well, as you may be able to detect by my accent, I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. I'm from the city of Leeds in the northeast, which is about 200 miles north of the capital. Funny, I, was hearing, I was hearing pure Herzliya. I don't know. <laughs> um, that's right. Or Brooklyn. Sometimes Brooklyn. So, Leeds is like the Brooklyn of, uh, of England. No, it's probably not. But no, that's the golden green. From, <laughs> far from it. But I'm from there. And I was born and raised in a very orthodox tradition. I'm one of seven children, six sons and a daughter. And I'm no longer a member of the Orthodox denomination of Jewry. I actually believe that I belong to the largest denomination of global Jewry, which is that of the struggling Jew, where sometimes you're up with your faith and sometimes you're down with your faith. And most of the time, you're just trying to make your way through this world. But I'm a very, very proud Jew. 
race. What, what, what precipitated that, that shift for you? And what, what was that uh, journey like for you? Well, the journey was always an up and down. So, for example, when I was a child being raised in the Orthodox tradition, I was raised in a community without too many other children my own age. I didn't, for example, attend a Jewish high school. There was no Jewish high school in the town in which I grew up. And therefore, anytime there were birthday parties or expeditions or any such thing, I would be the only Jewish boy with a separate double-packed, double-wrapped kosher sandwich, kosher meal, and so forth. And so I always felt a little bit of an outsider. But of course, the reaction, the averse reaction to being an outsider is a childish one. And so I grew out of that. And then at the age of 13, I stepped away from living an orthodox lifestyle for my own reasons. And then I came back to it at university. And when I went away to university at the University of Manchester, I found myself having to wonder whether I wanted a Jewish life now that I was living independently, or whether I wanted a life that was not marked by Judaism, distinguished by my Judaism, by Frumkite and, and by Jewish traditions. And the answer was that I very much did want Jewish traditions as part of my life. And so I returned to observance with a couple of caveats. Number one, I would never judge another Jew by way of their level of religious observance. Number two, I would only keep that which I understood. And number three, I would observe those aspects of religion that constituted a supplement to my life. Whether they were convenient or inconvenient is irrelevant, but if they were supplementary to my life, if they enhanced my life, those were the things that I sought to incorporate within my life. Interesting. So then, it was kind of a conditional sort of acceptance at that point in time. I think it was a lowering of the bar. Because I think that if I had aspired towards living an unconditionally religious life, I would have been certain to fail in that endeavor. And so I continued to observe Kashrut, Shabbat, so on and so forth, all the way through my university studies and then during my service in the Israel Defense Forces and for some years thereafter, with the utmost sincerity. And then a few years ago, I believe it was in 2012, I bore witness to a series of great cruelties within particular communities that caused me to ask questions about institutions in which I'd grown up having very strong and good faith. But those questions did not return positive answers. And that's my personal story. I'd be happy to talk about it more. But the outcome, the long story short, the summary of that experience is that I'm a very, very proud Jew. I'm not an Orthodox Jew, as I said, and that from the day that I saw those misdeeds until this day, and hopefully for the future, I will only assign myself to two types of communities. One is the state of Israel, and the other is the people of Israel. And beyond those two communities, I'm rather uninterested in the delineations of to which community one belongs, which denomination one belongs, which Nusach one prays or davens. Those sorts of distinctions are of little interest to me. It's, it's you know, very, first of all, very uh, interesting or fascinating story, and I appreciate your candor. Um, what strikes me, a, a few things, you know, first of all, it's kind of a, a, a clarion call for those who are in institutions and are perhaps in positions of leadership that, you know, actions matter and uh, people are observing them and, you know, and, and people have the ability to impact others' faith, whether or not they should, you know, you know, in the theoretical sense, one could say, you know, people's mistakes aren't God's responsibility, so to speak. Um, and yet in a practical sense, I think, very often they are, you know, and uh, that's certainly how it, how it uh, manifests. And so it's a, it's a real sense of responsibility for people in those positions. I think, I think prescribed religion, if you like, is not for me. I absolutely see the wisdom of the religious tenets and teachings. So, for example, as somebody who grew up with Judaism as a central aspect of my life, 
I shudder to think just how impoverished my life would be were it not for that inclusion within my makeup. I absolutely love Jewish traditions. I absolutely enjoy the fact that I can walk into a Bet Knesset, a synagogue anywhere, and know exactly where they are with the davening, where they are with the prayers, and what they're praying about. And I love the fact that my life is very much attuned to the rhythm and the melody of Judaism. And I'm not here certainly to say how one should or should not behave. I'm not qualified to do so. But I can tell you that while my faith took a hit, my beliefs remained absolutely rock solid. And therefore, I'm a very proud Jew. I remain a very, very proud Jew. What's interesting is that the two communities you identified, you know, the state of Israel and the people of Israel. Yes. Although, you know, I'm also a great fan of, the, of, the, of both of those communities. But they're not perfect either. And so it's interesting no. that those, the misdeeds, so to speak, that, that exist there have not dampened your enthusiasm for those communities like they have for the, those of your youth. Why the distinction there? The distinction is what you're saying. There are certain areas where I feel that I can engage and make my own small difference and bring my own added value, hopefully. And... The state of Israel is imperfect, but it's absolutely intrinsic to my past, my present, and my future. And the people of Israel are imperfect, but are absolutely intrinsic to my past, my present, and my future. And I think that one begets the betterment of the other. And therefore, if the state of Israel does well, I'm absolutely certain that the people of Israel will do well, wherever they may be including throughout the diaspora, certainly. And if the people of Israel do well, the state of Israel will do well as a consequence of that. And therefore, that is an enfranchisement from which I cannot, nor would I ever wish to shirk. I think it's a wonderful privilege to be part of that. And of course, as we speak about others being imperfect, let us not forget that we are all flawed. I know that I certainly, certainly am, I'm flawed and I make mistakes, but on Israel, I, I think I'm right. I, I think that there's an absolute glorious connection between the state and the people. And of course, I was a member of the people of Israel long before I became a citizen of the state of Israel. And my doing so ultimately was a derivative of the fact that I was raised as a member of the people of Israel and that the centrality of the state of Israel was always reiterated to me during the course of my childhood. Yeah, maybe just to kind of tie a bow around this little section. which well, is right, we can carry on. If we could, but it wasn't even our topic. But <laughs> right, we'll come back. There we go. But, you know, just I guess I personally, I, I kind of relate to the religious community the way that you're describing your relationship to the Israel community, which is that recognizing and acknowledging the imperfections, but appreciating that I'm tied up past, present, and future in a sense with, you know, with its uh, dictates and with its you know, commitments and so forth. Um, and that's kind of how I see it. And, it, you know, it's not mine to shirk, even though I may be disappointed at times uh, by some of its adherence behavior. So it's an interesting kind of well, I think, I think that these two points in your response is absolutely reconcilable with that which I said. For example, I don't know your personal past. Perhaps you can tell me, have you served in the military? I have not. Okay, so, so you are in, at this stage not going to serve in the military, is my opinion. I don't think they'll take me at this point. <laughs> there are other maybe, maybe as a rabbi one day. There are other battles and there are other dynamics in which you must engage because they play to your skill set. Now, I don't have your skill set when it comes to working within the fold of Orthodox Judaism. And so what I try to do in my very own, very small way is to ensure that all of the shades and all of the streams of Judaism have a country in which they can be collated and collected, that would be the state of Israel, and that the people of Israel line themselves up well behind the idea that there is this variance among our own number, but it's a variance among and within our own number, and one variance or the other ought not to be shunned. And therefore, I think it's vital that we engage within the broader conversation about the people of Israel. And within that are people such as yourself, uniquely talented and able, people such as other Rabbanim and 
and Robertsons and educators, formal and informal. And I think that all of you need the space to do that which you do best, because of course only you can do it the way in which you can do it. And I think that the two viewpoints are absolutely reconcilable. I'm in no way, by the way, anti-religion. I'm very much in favor of it. I, I just know where my comfort level begins, where it ends, and of course it can change. That's something that I do want people to be aware of. I don't think we should be too strident about where we are on the religious spectrum today as though it dictates where we ought to be or will be tomorrow. Events can change, circumstances can change, realizations can change, education can improve, and we ought always to be open to, to that reality. Absolutely. I would, I would certainly say that neither self-righteousness nor obstinacy are uh, strong positions from which to operate. So... I can definitely agree with you there. So, Benjamin, how did you get, let's get back to your story. How did you get from Leeds to Israel? Was it that after high school you said, right, I'm, I'm jumping in, joining the IDF? Like, what was the, was it a very Zionistic upbringing that you always kind of were oriented towards Israel? Where, where did you go and how did you get to, to that point? So, Rabbi, it really begins with very early childhood memories. When I was a young child, I was the son of the Chazan. I am the son of what was then the Chazan of the city, one of the major synagogues in the city. And my grandfather was the Av Din. He was the head of the rabbinic court in the city. And as a consequence of my family background, every Yom Hazikaron, Israeli veterans were sent to Leeds to stay with Zionistic families. And these would be veterans of the... War of 56, of 67, of 73, and they would be hosted by us around our dinner table. And I remember meeting these individuals, and they would say things like, I was shot during the course of this war, and there is a bullet lodged too close to my heart for it to be removed, or I have shrapnel in my shoulder, or whatever it may be. And then they would go on and say, and I'm a practicing attorney or and I'm a dentist, and I'm a doctor, and I'm an accountant. And I recall very clearly sitting around the table, I cannot have been more than four, five, six years of age, and thinking to myself, just one moment, you're telling me that the, the group of Jews somewhere who not only have all of the qualifications of the Jewish people that I'm raised around, but they also fight for something and they also know to defend themselves and they also sacrifice. That's the kind of Jew that resonated with me. So I was drawn to that notion of what a Jew is from a very, very young age. What about that do you think was, was so resonant for you? You know, obviously it was not an intellectual thing because you, you were too young. So something reflexively responded to that. What do you think about your personality that was? I think it's, it was very, very visceral, as you say. And I think that it was an understanding that you can, could reconcile that you had a home that was yours, that there were a bunch of Jews who had that home and were willing to fight for it and were willing to do so without shame or embarrassment or doubt, with a, a degree of pride that was not manifested within the community that I grew up in. And it wasn't that I noticed an absence of pride on a daily basis. I certainly didn't. And there were many wonderful Jews in the community that I grew in. But when one measured the pride that was manifest within the community of my childhood up against the obvious upper level, higher level of pride that was manifest by these Israelis, there was really nothing to compare. And I was drawn to that, I think. I think that's what pulled me towards them and drew my attention in. Interesting. So you decided, I guess, at a certain point, or what point was it that you said, I want to hitch my uh, wagon to this, uh, to this place? Well, I was also raised in a very Zionistic household. My father had volunteered for service during the Six-Day War, not as a soldier, but as a volunteer. As a singer? The Six-Day War. He, he no, as, a, as a singer, as a Chazan? No, 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 far from it. He tilled the land because there's a misnomer, or the Six-Day War is actually a misnomer. Of course, the fighting may have lasted six days, but the soldiers were on the frontiers of Israel protecting it for months thereafter. Months and months and months. And so businesses might have become neglected, fields may not have been tilled. 
and so on and so forth. And my father was part of the mission to go and to not only look after the land during the time of the war, but also to do so long afterwards. So he was there in 1967. My mother was very, very Zionistic. And what really brought about this change was that at the age of 14, I had begun to commute on a daily basis to the closest Jewish high school to the town in which I grew up. So I grew up in Leeds, remember. The closest Jewish high school was in the city of Manchester. It was a two and a half hour commute on a daily basis each way. So it took of five hours. Oh my commute. goodness. Huh. And, and that, you didn't even have a podcast back then to listen to. Back I, then didn't, to listen to. I didn't have a podcast. In fact, <laughs> I, remember, I remember the soundtrack of those journeys though very, very clearly. I'm sure. And I can tell you that it bears mentioning the fact that the presence of Jewish high schools within cities is not something to be taken for granted. I think a great many people take it for granted. Where are you right now? I live in Silver Spring, Maryland. We do have... Okay, so, so there's a plethora of, of institutions for Jewish education right there in Silver Spring. But that's not something to be taken for granted. Many, many of your brethren, your Jewish brethren, live in places bereft of such institutions. And I grew up in one such place. So I would travel for two and a half hours daily. And then on one particular morning, when I was 14 years of age, I saw my brother beaten almost to death by a gang of anti-Semitic thugs. At 8.30 in the morning, seven men set upon him. They beat him very, very severely to the point whereby at the end of the attack, I had to literally lift him off the ground he was purpled and bruised and bloodied. Hi. He was beaten unconscious. And then I had to carry him to the school gates. This, from the school gates, he was transported to the hospital. And some while thereafter, due to a deterioration in his health, he had to undergo three liver transplants in the space of a week. And as a child, I again made the decision that I would seek never to fall prey to that kind of attack again, which again is a juvenile response. As a young adult, my response was that the Jewish people must always have a place where they can be free of that type of hatred, and that place is Israel. And I wanted to be in a place where I'd be safe because I'm Jewish rather than in spite of the fact that I'm Jewish. That place is the states of Israel. And so I actually signed up to serve in the Israel Defense Forces at the age of 18. And I didn't go. And the reason I didn't go was because my brother was in a very precarious situation in terms of his own health. And I felt it unfair to inflict upon my mother this situation whereby she had one child desperately unwell, really looking into the abyss of, of death at a particular stage, and another child who was running toward a situation of his own volition that might bring about difficult circumstances as well. And so I deferred the decision. I enrolled in my studies at university, and I said that if the passion for service in the IDF continued to burn at the end of my studies, then I would seek to conscript as a lone soldier. And in actual fact, the passion only grew because I was a student during the events of the Second Intifada, and the Second Intifada was a wave of Palestinian homicide bombings against Israelis. And as a student campaigner at the student union in Manchester, I was very struck by the idea that from the professor to the student and from the professionals to the layman, and even from the elected official to the voter, regardless of the number of buses that were killed, that were turned into killing fields, or the number of people killed in the course of undertaking the perfectly ordinary the broad consensus in England was that the state of Israel had no right to defend herself in the face of those threats. And I realized there was no future for Anglo Jewry. That still happens to be my opinion. And so I moved right after I graduated and I had the privilege of being drafted some months thereafter as a lone soldier. Wow. And what did you do uh, once you got to the army? What was your role? I was a heavy machine gunner in the Israel Defense Forces. And I served in the Second Lebanon War. Our brigade was the first in, the deepest in, and as I understand it, the last ones out. That's 06? That was in 2006. And then I served again in 
I was drafted again in Operation Pillar of Defense in 2012 and then Operation Protective Edge in 2014. On those occasions, sent to Judea and Samaria, not to the Gaza Strip. I also served along Israel's northern border. I served in Hebron for several months. And I've served in various parts around the states of Israel. I still continue as a reservist today, but that comes to an end within the next year or so. And it was a very varied service. It was a very interesting service. It was a wonderful experience. And it was without doubt or question the greatest decision that I have ever made. What was your experience like in the Army? What were some of the memorable moments or takeaways? And, you know, I know 06 was a very difficult war for Israel, a heavily criticized and scrutinized battle or series of battles. I would imagine that you encountered a good deal of, of loss in your own ranks, given what happened, although I don't want to presuppose anything. What, what was your experience there in, in that particular engagement and, and perhaps others during your time? Sure. So the second Lebanon war was a very interesting dynamic because it was an occasion whereby Israeli soldiers were returning to a, a home front that believed and asserted that the war had been a failure. And I actually never was out of that opinion, not because I participated in it, but because I take a very different view of things. And I actually believed the second Lebanon war, I believed it then, I stated it then, and I believe it now was an absolute study in how a standing military can be discharged in order to defeat a terrorist organization or at the very least to restrain a terrorist organization. I think that many of the analysts who looked at the second Lebanon war looked at it through the prism of conventional war, whereby one can identify victory or loss in accordance with how many tanks are knocked out, how many soldiers fall, whether or not there is a specific line of victory. And those dynamics are not present in the modern day arena of war. It's much more about bringing quiet to your borders, bringing about a cessation in hostilities, perhaps not a permanent end, but a cessation in hostilities. And when I heard the war criticized because of the fact that soldiers did not have sufficient equipment or because soldiers dehydrated or because soldiers starved, I would challenge anybody to bring me the name of a military campaign whereby soldiers did not starve or where soldiers did not suffer or where soldiers did not dehydrate or indeed where soldiers did not fall tragically. Such barometers are not the best means of measuring the success or failure of a campaign. But my memories of the military are rather different and distinct from what one might imagine. So, for example, I went to the IDF, having studied history, literature and politics in English at university. I flew five or six hours, whatever the flight time is, and I arrived in a military where I didn't speak a single word of the language that was to be used. I didn't speak any Hebrew. I knew to read and I knew to write, but I was never taught to understand and certainly not to speak in Hebrew. And so there I was, somebody who'd used my abilities, whatever they are or are not, in communication to that point, and suddenly I was thrust into a dynamic where I could not speak a word. And that was wonderful, because what that did was it humbled me to a position whereby all I had to show who I was and what I was, was my deeds. That was it. I had to be a man of deeds, not a man of words. And it's an interesting thing about vocabulary. If you have a rich vocabulary, you manipulate it to suit your personality. If you have a poor vocabulary, your personality is manipulated in order to suit it. And so if all you know is to say, please and thank you and shalom, you suddenly become the most polite member of the game, right? Because all you can say is please and thank you. But that was one example. I also got a daily thrill from learning more and more words. And in fact, my time during basic training was an interesting one. I drafted, I was told on the day of my draft by my commander that I had six months to learn the language. And if I didn't learn the language by then, that I would not be taken further, I would not make it into advanced training. And he said to me, you're not allowed to speak any English, what you are allowed to do is to write down 
any words you don't understand, which was an endless list of words. And, and during your free hour at the end of each day, you can go and ask your fellow soldiers what each and every word means. Now, that meant that my free hour was divided into three parts, 20 minutes for working out during my free time. I would always work out even after the rigors of the day, 20 minutes to go and look at the vocabulary that I'd listed with one of my fellow soldiers. And the remainder of the time would be for showering, getting ready for evening inspection, and so on and so forth. But I got a thrill from learning the language of the Jewish people. I actually oddly believe that it flows in our veins and we just have to uncover it. And there's no better way to uncover it than through the IDF. So did, did your own unit sustain casualties during the Lebanon war and how did that impact you? No, we did not sustain casualties during the second Lebanon war. We sustained certain traumas. There were individuals who returned from uh, the, the battlefield with post-traumatic stress disorder. There were certain challenges that were undertaken. We did get involved in a, in, in a number of situations there. But I'm very pleased to say, actually, I've never lost a soldier. And when I say a soldier, I mean a, an equal, a soldier equal to my rank or any other rank within my brigade. And I can also tell you that Walking into several of the areas in which we operated, we did unfortunately have to walk past the bodies of the dead soldiers and the limbless soldiers and the blinded soldiers. And that's a dreadful sight for one to see, one that an individual does not forget. And as somebody who came from the United Kingdom and saw the tremendous sacrifices and the injuries undertaken and sustained by the soldiers of the IDF, I was particularly shaken because I realized that those soldiers would be portrayed in the international media as being everything that they're not. Not, for example, as boys, but as barbarians, and not as defenders, but as invaders, and also not as these frightened sons who were forced to overcome their fears, but as these wanton killers. And it was that realization that made me feel that I ought to speak on it but I did not have a vehicle through which to do so. And I believe that seeing those awful sights about which you're asking did inform and did spur me on to ultimately do that, which I did today. So as you became, as you were discharged, what was your plan? And, and did you immediately identify that vehicle to be a, a, a spokesperson of sorts to amplify those messages? And if not, how did you ultimately arrive at that destination? Yeah, so there are two things that occurred. First of all, when I went to university, the plan was that I would do my undergraduate studies and then go and do what's called a law conversion course or a legal practitioner's course, which is a one-year truncated course to become an attorney in the United Kingdom. It's very, very different to the system in America. And during my service in Lebanon, I became inspired to go and pursue a medical degree instead of a legal qualification. And that was my plan. My plan was that after the army, I would go and become a doctor and practice as a doctor in the States of Israel. But I had to go back to get the prerequisites for medicine, which meant, his, which meant biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics. During the course of that year, I was asked to speak on Yom Hazikaron about my remembrances from my service in the IDF. And I did not want to. I was absolutely opposed to the idea of doing so. Even though I felt a responsibility, I did not think that I was the right individual to do that. My father compelled me to do it. He said that if you're being asked to speak, you have to speak. It's not really a matter of whether you wish to or don't wish to. It's whether you ought to, whether you should do. And the answer to that was that I should do. And so I spoke, and I spoke for about 10 minutes. And what occurred then was that one congregation contacted another congregation to tell them about the message that I was bringing forth. And this developed. I started speaking all around the United Kingdom, but I would work during the week in order to finance my train to go and speak during Shabbatot. 
I would work during the week in order to finance my accommodations during the course of the Shabbat where I was speaking. And then on one particular Shabbat, an individual said, Benjamin, the work that you're undertaking in the UK is important, but the US is much more important. Why don't you go and see what you can do over there before you start medical school? And I said that I would do so. I arrived in the US. I started to lecture in the United States. How did you get gigs? Well, Rabbi, here I definitely would not agree with the terminology gigs. We're not, <laughs> not in the Rolling Stones, but, uh, but the way that I got platforms, if that was the word. It, there we go. Okay, I stand corrected. There you go. Well, you don't have to, but that would be my view. But the way that I ended up gaining a platform was that there was one platform given to me originally organized by my cousin in London at a synagogue in Manhattan, a very well-known synagogue in Manhattan. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I don't want you to speak ill of anyone. And it was a complete disaster. I blew it. it terrible talk. I went on way too long. And to this day, I don't think that synagogue would have me back because of the <laughs> remembrance of how badly that first talk went. And I phoned my father and I said to him, listen, this is a disaster. I should not have come here. They don't want to hear me here in America. I'm just going to fold this up and leave it. And he again studied me and he said to me, no, you must go back, create and craft a different talk and hit it again. And ultimately, the first talk that I got that is worth remembering, as opposed to the first talk I ever got in the United States, which I would prefer to forget, was granted to me by way of a gentleman named Rabbi Stephen Prozansky. Sure. Of, of Tinek. Jeshurun in Tinek. Yeah. And he didn't really want me, but there was a congregant there by the name of Ken Stone who pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And ultimately, I was given an opportunity to speak in the Young Professionals Minyan. And I spoke there. And then the same thing that had happened in England began to happen in the United States at the particular hand of one individual by the name of uh, Zivi Mendelssohn from Englewood, New Jersey, who happened to be in Teaneck that Shabbat. He started calling other congregations, other congregations started to bring me, and then an organization was born. And within the first five, six, seven weeks of my time in the United States, I'd gone to all of the major congregations from Park Avenue Synagogue in the conservative denomination to KJ, to Fifth Avenue Synagogue, to Havat Torah in Englewood, you name it. And I, I had been there in the, in the first few weeks. And I said to people, you have a problem on your campuses when it comes to Israel. And this was in 2009, 2010, and they mocked me. People were very, very skeptical about the idea that there was a challenge on campuses. And they would say to me, Benjamin, this is not England. This is America. Things are different here. And I was insistent that they had an issue on their campuses. And if you fast forward between that time and today, there's barely anybody who believes there is not a problem on campuses. Sure. The reason I could see it was not because I'm endowed with brilliance. It's because what I saw in England, I noted it being replicated in the United States of America. And when you grow up around anti-Semitism, when you grow up around hatred towards Israel, the country and Israel, the people, you recognize it when it's on its way. And that is what I saw in the United States on the campuses, and I was correct about it. So what are your talks focused on, and what was unique about your message that people found it so compelling at these different synagogues and, and kept inviting you back? You know, there's many Israel, pro-Israel speakers that, that make the rounds for different platforms, as you call them. And, uh, you know, what, what do you think grabbed them about your particular story? Well, I think it's evolved over time. When I, when I, I should just go back a little bit. When I first crossed back into Israel at the end of the Second Lebanon War, my captain divided our brigade into two. And everybody went to one side, and then he divided me, or them from me, and sent me to go and interview with a reporter from the Times of London. And I didn't want to do that. That reporter from the Times of London was interested in what I think audiences in America were interested. He did not want to hear from political analysts. He did not want to hear from politicians. He did not want to hear from policy advisors. He wanted to hear from somebody who'd been on the line, in the field, who was able to communicate what was going on, what wasn't going on, and what were the sentiments of the average soldier, and what were not the sentiments of the average soldier. And I recognized that as I sat for interview with him, 
And I brought that into the work that I had to talk when I spoke, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States of America and everywhere else. So I think what people are looking for is an honest eye-level conversation about what takes place. But I want to be very, very clear about something. I am not here to represent all sides. I don't make any pretense about my abilities to present balance. I'm not here to be balanced. I'm fiercely pro-Israel, fiercely pro-Jewish, very, very proud of the Israel Defense Forces, extremely proud of the State of Israel, a proud Jew. And I think audiences, listeners, recognize that when they hear it. And that is what I believe has begotten our talks on more than 450 campuses to date. That's what enables us to brief members of the Congress, members of the Senate, even members of the administration. And my message, of course, has evolved. So I began talking about the IDF. Today I talk much more about the lessons learned from the campuses, from the Congress, from the Senate. I, for example, months ago was alerting people to the fact that there is anti-Semitism in the political class among elected officials in the United States of America. A lot of people denied that. A lot of people said there was no such thing, that there is such a thing, and it needs to be acknowledged, and it needs to be counted, and it needs to be counted vociferously and immediately, lest America should go the way of Europe. And it's all possible. It's all possible. The distinction between Europe and America is that here it really matters. So, for example, if the United Kingdom should turn its face against the State of Israel, I'm not sure that has a massive impact upon the State of Israel has an impact, but it's not a massive impact. If the United States should turn its face against the state of Israel, that will be very impactful indeed. And I want to guard against that. Can you share some of your experiences speaking on different campuses around the country? I, I think I've heard, maybe read at different points, kind of just following you from afar, you know, different protests that you've encountered or, you know, the need, need for security and things of that nature. What has the culture been that you've experienced and and has it evolved and changed and what are some of the any any interesting vignettes you can share yeah so the culture when i started off at the university campuses was one of immediate opposition people would shout down people would have demonstrations people would undertake die-ins people would stand up in the middle and seek to disrupt and undertake walkouts seeking to leave the room looking empty. All of that happened. There are, of course, times where it's more strident, the opposition. There are times when it's less so. So, for example, during Operation Protective Edge or following Operation Protecting Edge, Protective Edge, there was massive opposition on the campuses. And then there are lulls and then there are increases. There are certainly students who will shout, scream, seek to intimidate and so forth. But... We actually organizationally took a look at that dynamic and said, at the undergraduate level, there's virtue in speaking, but there's uncertainty as to how much of an impact long-term you will have. And so we switched gears and we decided that we were going to target the graduate universities throughout the United States of America. Huh. And within the graduate universities, specifically areas of study from which leadership is likely to emanate. So if you look at your elected officials in the United States, for example, a disproportionate number of them come from legal backgrounds. Yep. Bill Clinton is a lawyer, Barack Obama is a lawyer, Hillary Clinton is a lawyer, Mitt Romney is a lawyer, and Ted Cruz is a lawyer. And you go all the way down the line and, and there's just a plethora of people from legal backgrounds. So if you want to get in touch with a future legislator, they're probably pursuing legal studies right about now. If you want to be in touch with those who seek to advise legislators, they're probably enrolled in courses of international relations and global affairs right now. If you want to get in touch with the people who will propagate and disseminate the views of elected officials, they're probably pursuing media degrees. And so we target law, international relations, media and policy, and we've just added business, and we send the very best of the Israel Defense Forces or the Israeli establishment to the given institution and platform. So that means IDF lawyers to the top law schools, Israeli ambassadors to the international relations schools, media analysts to the media schools, 
and then we hoover up the best of these graduate students. We bring them to Israel for a 10-day Israel Law and Policy Tour, which is called the ILAP Tour, the Israel Law and Policy Tour. And then upon the conclusion of that tour, their engagement with Israel really commences and they become our organizers on campus, our recruiters on campus. The vast majority of them are not Jewish. The vast majority of them are very appreciative of a substantive presentation about Israel rather than shallow advocacy. And we believe that we're actually educating through our work on the campuses and through our work on the Hill, where we educate legislators, we actually believe that we're engaging the leaders of today and tomorrow now. And we think that that's very, very important work. So really it's transformed from a, uh, from a, from you going around giving speeches to you now, first of all, bringing other experts and other speakers in as representatives and also to actually taking students uh, with leadership potential to Israel for tours uh, that will train them and give them the, the tools they need to go back and become activated as leaders themselves, which is a, a completely new uh, direction and a much more ambitious and, and difficult program. What are some of the challenges that you dealt with in trying to grow this apparatus and, and, and what have been some of the real successes? Well, first of all, there's immediate value in bringing the appropriate expert to the appropriate student audience. So when you bring a, a lawyer from the IDF's legal department, what's called the MAC Corps, the Military Advocate General's Corps, approximately, or, or which approximates the JAG Corps in the right. United States, JAG Advocate Generals, what you're doing is you're having a conversation about Israel in the language in which the audience wishes to discuss the subject, right? So the audience is a legally inclined audience and you're bringing them a legal expert. It's not an audience that's inclined to look into allegations of genocide and you're bringing them NASDAQ results, right? (laughs) Which is all of advocacy. So we, we have a very substantive discussion right away that immediately has a benefit. We also believe that the state of Israel is her own finest ambassador. So the goal is to bring the best of these students over to Israel. It's much less of a challenge if they engage following a presentation on their campus because they realize that the level of presentations is of a very high standard and therefore the actual tour is likely to be of a higher standard as well. We bring them not just from the United States, we bring these future leaders from 15 different countries each year. So a Harvard Law student is largely uninterested in spending his or her summer with another Harvard Law student because they see that Harvard Law students at Harvard Law School. But if they have designs on public office, they're very interested in spending time with perhaps the British equivalent or the French equivalent or the Kenyan equivalent or the Australian equivalent or the Chinese equivalent. And so we bring all of these future leaders to converge on the state of Israel for 10 days. Some of the challenges are, frankly, that we have much more uh, applications than spaces. Not everybody who applies can get onto the tour. It's very, very competitive to be accepted to the tour. And I think that it's just a privilege to be able to see how the State of Israel opens the eyes of the participants. The vast majority are not of the Jewish faith. And we actually run these tours for two particular groups. One is that which I've spoken about namely the the graduate students with a commitment to public service. But there's another group that we cater to uniquely. There is no other tour of its kind globally. And that's the ISAP tour. And the ISAP tour is the Israel Strategy and Policy Tour, whereby we bring cadets of the U.S. military academies at West Point, which is the Army, at the Air Force Academy, which is obviously the Air Force, and at Virginia Military Institute, which services the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the U.S. Marine Corps. We bring them for two days to Poland, to see the death camps, and then 14 days to the State of Israel. And these are individuals who are going to be officers within two to three years of the conclusion of the tour. So we think that by by providing quality and by providing substance and by providing information and an extremely high caliber of delegate and speaker, the State of Israel does her own talking and represents and equips herself very, very well. And it makes a long-standing impact that will escort these individuals within their private careers, their public careers, and far beyond, quite honestly. So how has this all changed you? I imagine you've now had to become more of a 
of an executive, of a manager, a, a fundraiser. How is how has all this evolved your life? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I don't enjoy the management, and and I don't enjoy the fundraising. I'm very very fortunate that our donors, or, or as I say, our investors, are individuals who make my life easy in that sense. They're, they're not individuals who seek to be wined and dined. They're very direct. They are confident that what they invest in is that which we undertake and what we ask them to invest in, we will then bring to fruition. So I'm very fortunate in terms of who our investor base is. In terms of management, that is something that I find myself doing an awful lot. I will be making some changes with that. I'm now going to have to bring in the appropriate talents to do that because it's time for me to look to the next steps within my own career. And my ambitions are not to be a manager of an organization, but to continue to bring influence and to impact upon opinions in the best way possible. I've managed to do that to this point. But thankfully, as a consequence of our success, it now requires a larger team. And we're actually set up to, to do that. And in fact, we're building a new organization. I also want to say that I have a wonderful partner in the work that we undertake by the name of Rosita Panini. And she's the president of our organization. And Rosita's really the chief operating officer. So she is 100% voluntary within the organization. And she is in the nuts and bolts of everything that we do. So the tours that we run to Israel, Rosita runs those tours. Rosita arranges everything that's undertaken within the course of those tours. This year alone, we'll be bringing about 110 students, as I said, from 15 different countries. So it's a massive undertaking. And I always say to people, if they want to start their own concern, they need to find a Rosita. Because <laughs> it's far too much for one individual and only one other individual with, with her qualities and with her talents, just one individual like that will be sufficient for you to overcome all of the challenges which are daily, unexpected and impossible to anticipate. So I, I think everybody has to find the right partner for the journey. And I was very fortunate that Rosita came along and she really, she came from a business background. So Rosita essentially took what was my initiative and flipped it into an organization. And now it's a very, very successful organization, very lean, very mean, very focused, very directed, and we're continuing to succeed. This will be our largest number of delegates hitherto to the State of Israel. And we're really just getting started with that. We anticipate growing that exponentially over the course of the next three years. And you, you mentioned that you'd like to bring people in so that you can be liberated to focus on some bigger visions and, and uh, bring an impact in a different sort of way. What are your future plans and where do you see yourself going besides, as you, as you said, growing the, the current operation and the number of people that you're impacting, but what do you want to do that's qualitatively different moving forward? Well, the first thing is that going back to the beginning of our conversation, I don't believe that any one individual is an expert for all theatres. And there's a tendency within many organizations, again, without naming them, for organizations to revolve around one individual. And that one individual specifically concentrates as much power and as much influence within their hands because they want the speaking opportunities and the writing opportunities, and they believe that they're eminently qualified to speak on everything to everyone at any time on any dynamic. And it's not true. It simply isn't true. So, for example, I am not the individual best place to speak about Air Force strategy when it comes to dealing with the Iranian threat. But I know the individual who is. That's more in my domain. Exactly. That's more <laughs> I'm still but, waiting for the call, Benjamin. What? Exactly. I'm well, this, now, that I have, now that I have your details on <laughs> But I do know the person who is, and therefore I want that person lecturing on. And I'm not the right individual to talk about egalitarian prayer at the wall. But I do know the right person for that. And I want that person speaking on it because these subjects are too delicate for us to be ham-handed about how we tackle them. And so that's the first thing. I don't necessarily want to be liberated from the duties of management. 
I want the conversation to be led by the appropriate experts. So, so I'm now building a policy tank, which is called the Miriam Institute, and that will be the next iteration of work. And the Miriam Institute is going to take on what I believe to be a very central challenge, which is it's something that we're ignoring, but I believe we're again in the midst of. So the people of Israel, the Jewish people, knows what it is to be banished from their homeland. And we also know what it is to be banished, ostracized, or burned from countries or by countries which have hosted us in the absence of living in our homeland. But I think what we have not known is what befalls the Jewish people when various strands of diaspora Jewry, and I want to emphasize this, various strands of diaspora Jewry, affix a target upon the back of the one and only Jewish state. And I think we're about to find out. And I think we're actually already walking into that epoch. And that needs to be tackled. And the state of Israel must be the one that tackles it. And so I'm determined to bring about a situation whereby the best of Israel from the left, center, and right of the mainstream political perspectives are brought to discuss Israel's future and destiny throughout the diaspora. I don't believe that's being done. I think it needs to be tackled. And I think that the state of Israel must take the lead in conversations that pertain to its own future. And so we're launching the Miriam Institute in the coming weeks, and we will have many policy experts on many different matters, and we will be debating, we will be writing, we will be opining, and I am someone, for example, who is probably characterized as right of center on security issues. But I think that my views, if I believe them and adhere to them and hold them, and I do, ought to be able to stand up to great challenge from somebody from the left. And I think we should have those debates. And I think we should have those debates in a spirit that says that we can listen to one another, we can exchange views with one another, we can even listen to one another's arguments, open to the idea that we may change our views, having been compelled to do so by the virtue of the opposing argument. But we need to have those discussions, and right now it's absent, and it's only to our detriment that it is absent. So that's the next project. That's the next project. It's not the final project. I'm sure. That's the next project, yeah. Is the Miriam Institute, is that based on Miriam Adelson? Is she the donor? No, actually, we don't get any funding from, from the Adelsons, but I can tell you that I was just discussing this with Colonel Richard Kemp, who is a friend of mine. We went out for, for dinner, myself, Colonel Kemp, and Rosita Panini, and we were discussing how fortunate we are to have individuals such as the Adelsons, and the support that they give is really beyond description. And we don't get any support from them, but I support them in everything that they do. Who, I really, who then is Miriam? So the idea is that we want to be able to show that Israel will take even the toughest of decisions when it comes to safeguarding its own future. And of course, Miriam made the very tough decision with uh, Moshe on the Nile. Therefore, the, the Jewish people were salvaged and saved and had a leader. But we, we wanted the name for many reasons. First of all, we wanted the name that demilitarizes the subject of Israel. Miriam, a woman's name, does that. We wanted a name that also is not exclusively Jewish, but it's Middle Eastern. So if we want to broaden the remit, we can do that. And we wanted a name that denotes that the Jewish people will take its own future into its own hands. And it does not require the dictates of others in order to determine what its best future is or how to get to that future. So those are really the considerations that underpin the name and the selection of, of the name Miriam. Very, very interesting. Uh, Benjamin, where could people learn more about all of that that you're doing, that you've been doing? Can people uh, find you, your talks online, other, other of the experts that you've brought? And just in general, wh where is there the resources that you bring to bear available? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll talk to you about two resources. The first is there's OurSoldiersSpeak.org. And you can find the links to our social media through that. And that includes Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. 
And yes, there are some talks out there on YouTube. There's also a, another separate issue that I've put forward, which is the new state solution. Now, Rabbi, are you familiar with the new state solution? I'm not. Is that, is that, does that deal with annexation or what is that? It's disgraceful that you're not, you're not familiar with the new state solution. This I, don't, <laughs> or <it's>, uh... <laughs> this I do not forgive. This is unforgivable. So the new state solution is a policy platform, and I would urge you to look at it in all seriousness now. I would urge you to look at it because I am and always have been opposed to the two-state solution. Now, let me say this clearly so that everybody understands. I think the two-state solution, as is commonly understood, is complete, total, and utter nonsense, given far too much oxygen for far too long. And those who continue to specialize in the, new, the, the two-state solution have been proven to fail time and again. They, they remind me of an individual who goes to see a movie several different times over and expects a, an alternate ending to the movie uh, once the credits start to roll. We need to talk about other ways forward. And so I'm calling for the establishment of a state for the Palestinian Arabs that is truly independent, sovereign, viable, and thriving, living side by side with the states of Israel. Not necessarily in peace, but in quiet. But I call for that state to be anchored in the Gaza Strip with contiguity into a section of the Sinai Peninsula. And people can learn more about that at newstatesolution.org. And I would invite people and encourage people to look at that because if you're like me and you do not support the two-state solution for too long, people have been able to browbeat you and say, well, if you're not for two states, you must be for war. Well, actually, no, there are alternatives. And it's a separate initiative and it's gained a great deal of traction and it's called the newstatesolution.org and you can read op-eds by Israeli generals, former generals, ambassadors, myself, and others who are very, very committed to this idea. We've presented it at the Congress, we've presented it at the Senate, we've presented it in the British Parliament, in the Polish, and elsewhere. And I would tell everybody to take a look at those two websites. They're separate, but very important initiatives. OurSolidSpeak.org and NewStateSolution.org. Why is that not just a different version of the two-state solution? It is. You're correct. It's still two states for two peoples living side by side in security. It merely requires that we reimagine the borders or the frontiers alongside which those two states are established. But it certainly is two states for two peoples living side by side in security. The distinction is that unlike the two-state solution, it calls for a state that's truly independent for the Palestinian Arabs, truly independent, truly sovereign, truly viable, truly thriving. The two-state solution offers none of that and never has offered it. And it also calls for an end to the ceding of land by the state of Israel in the pursuit of peace. And it also calls for an end to open requests or open stipulations that there ought to be forced transfers of any population. In the new state solution, no population would have its transfer forced by anybody. We actually view forced transfer as being anti-Israeli, and therefore we would not engage in it either for Israeli Jews or for Palestinian Arabs. And so Judea and Samaria would be fully annexed and incorporated? No, no, we don't go as far as dealing with Judea and Samaria at this stage. We say start with the Gaza Strip, pacify the Gaza Strip. It needs to be pacified urgently. You cannot pacify the Gaza Strip without dealing with the Sinai Peninsula because it's through the Sinai Peninsula that much of the contraband comes for the launching of rockets, arming of Hamas, so on and so forth. So we say start with the Gaza Strip, end the humanitarian challenges that are there, and build up a state in Sinai, in the Gaza Strip, in the image that the Palestinian Arabs wish it to take form, show proof of concept, and then you can start to talk about what may or may not happen in Judea and Samaria, but we do not foreclose on anything. We certainly don't lead to annexation. And what we say is do not offer anything less than they currently have. So, for example, 
the area delineated for the new state in Gaza Sinai is exactly the same territorial size as is Judea and Samaria plus the Gaza Strip. Uh, another example would be that they immediately go, the Palestinian Arabs, from being a stateless people to a people with a state. Those who live in Gaza would be immediately citizens of the new state and residents of Gaza Sinai. Those who live in Judea and Samaria would be residents of Judea and Samaria with citizenship in the new state. So all of the Palestinian Arabs get immediately upgraded from being a people absent statehood to being a people with a state. And you're not concerned about the militarization of, uh, of an independent state run by Hamas? I'm cons- well, I call for the complete destruction of Hamas. So that's a part of the new state solution as well? For me it is, yes. I believe that Hamas should be toppled. I'm, I do not- as it looks now, would not, you would not be comfortable with becoming a state? No, no, no. You have to destroy Hamas, in my opinion. There are different views within the working group. So there are those who believe, for example, that through financial inducement, you could actually force Hamas to change its stripes and to change its behavior. There are examples of that happening in the past, but I actually view that as less likely. Now, I'm in the minority within the working group. My view is that the state of Israel and possibly even the coalition of forces beyond the Israel Defense Forces needs to topple Hamas. It needs to topple Hamas and it needs to do so conclusively. But in order to do so conclusively, you need to be able to operate there for a sustained period of time. And in order to operate for a sustained period of time effectively, you need to hook that military operation to a political solution. And the new state solution would be that political solution. It would be a case of us saying to the domestic and international community, we are operating in the Gaza Strip. This is the end goal. To here, we are bound. And this will bring about a better future for the people in the area, Israelis, Palestinian Arabs, and so on and so forth. So I'm actually in favor of destroying Hamas. Hamas, I'm not talking about civilians. I'm not talking about the average individual in the Gaza Strip that the regime of Hamas needs to be toppled, in my view. It's too long-standing a threat. It's too much of a challenge. And I find the whole dynamic with Hamas and Gaza, though I realize we're embarking upon a much larger subject, to be completely untenable and unacceptable. And I actually think that we've been too accepting of their presence for far too long. And I'm on record in 2014 calling in writing for a ground incursion into the Gaza Strip and doing so, calling for an operation to which I may have been drafted at the time. So I mean what I'm saying. I think that Hamas has to go. Well, very, very fascinating. A lot to chew on there and, and process. And uh, I hope people will do that at the website, the New State Solution. And Benjamin Anthony, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. And I hope that you and Meor, above all else, are teaching all of your disciples that under no circumstances must we, the Jewish people, bargain away Jerusalem. I hope that you're conveying that to your people. It's very, very important. Continue with all the good work that you do. I hope you'll have me back. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I realize how dedicated you are to your students and to your organization. And I hope that, uh, as we say, you will go from strength to strength so that all of us will be strengthened. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.